As a community, First Baptist Felton exists for the purpose of knowing Jesus intimately, serving Jesus passionately, and sharing Jesus globally. Come join us on Sundays at one of our worship services at 8.30 or 11 a.m. and for Bible study at 9.45 a.m. We hope today's message encourages and strengthens your faith in God. Morning, church. It's wonderful to see everyone and uh, excited to be here with you today. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'll give you a moment to turn there. But I did want to say publicly and directly um, something that I've really been impressed with over the last year or so, and that is our church staff. Ministry is always a challenging vocation. A pastor friend of mine many years ago once said, ministry is brutal, is how he described it. And I thought that was a lovely way of describing some of the challenges uh, that one encounters in ministry and some of the beautiful things that you get to see. There has never been a more difficult time to minister to folks than the last year and a half, at least in our lifetimes, that's been the case. And I've continually been impressed by the staff of this church. When you add to that the challenges that always come with pastoral transitions, uh, they have been amazing. So I would ask that you express that uh, to them in uh, in your own way, if that is to maybe share a letter uh, with them of something or perhaps applause at this very moment. If you want to give them a a letter uh, indicating some time when they have been a blessing to you or perhaps uh, a note, if you'd like to give them a note, or if you'd like to give them a gift card uh, to something nice, I think that would be a blessing to them. I would ask that you not give them a hug at this point. I don't think we're authorized to do that yet. I know many, uh, probably Brother Gary is really looking forward to getting lots of hugs as soon as uh, this is is over. So please, please take some time to express to them your appreciation for their work. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Would you stand as we read together, or as I read, verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 12. We stand in honor, of course, of the reading of God's word. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all of us. Father, we give thanks for this day. We thank you for the blessings of your church family that you have not only blessed us with, but have called us to. And we ask for the presence of your Spirit as we study and learn today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So the church at Corinth was uh, a church that Paul founded himself on his second missionary journey, likely around 50 AD. He began his work with them and he stayed with them for a year and a half as the church was launched, uh, spending that time uh, discipling uh, some of the church leaders, Priscilla and Aquila were two of them. I always forget which one is the lady and which one is the man, but Priscilla and Aquila uh, were two of the ones that he worked with. And he spent a great deal of time 
uh, investing in this church. And after a period of about a year and a half, he went on and left there. And then for the rest of his life, he wrote letters back to that church offering additional guidance, additional uh, correction in some case, in some cases, and additional praise in the cases of others. If there was ever a church set up for success, it would have had to have been the church at Corinth. Paul had spent those times there specifically, and yet he had to write at least four letters that we know of, two of which we still have, investing in their lives. And, and engaging in some of the challenges that they encountered. And the church at Corinth was a, a, a very cosmopolitan church. It was in a location of a, a lot of important uh, uh, trading routes that came through, connecting the Middle East uh, with, uh, with Imperial Rome. And so this was a place where there were lots of different ethnicities. Uh, there were lots of different, uh, there were Jews, there were uh, Italians, there were Scythians. There were all these various groups that were a part of that church at Corinth. And so as the church broke into that community and began worshiping together and drawing together people who were never around each other at any point in time in their lives, it became at times a challenge for that church to think through exactly what God had called them to do and to be. And so Paul addresses this particular issue in chapter 12, where he spends a lot of time talking about the fact that there is a diversity in the church and that this was important and how that diversity contributed to their unity. And then he shared what the purpose of that was for. What does diversity matter? What does unity matter? What those, those are wonderful things in and of themselves, but is there a larger purpose behind them? And he shares that, and we're going to take a look at that today. So the first thing we see in verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 12 is that there is a diversity of gifts within the church. There is a diversity of gifts within the church, but they were all given by the same Spirit. So there's this connection, in fact, almost a tension between the fact that the diversity that is expressed within the church was all placed there by one spirit. It didn't happen randomly. It didn't happen just because the people themselves decided they would congregate together, but rather the fact that God was at work in all of these activities. So again, we see in verses four through seven, there are diversity of gifts but the same spirit behind these gifts. So what Paul is sharing with us is that the giftedness that everyone in this room possesses, and there's a wide variety of gifts that are here. Some folks that are are really good with numbers. Some folks are really good working with one another. Some folks are incredibly talented, as we just heard, in singing and playing musical instruments. All these wide variety of gifts that the people of God possess he brings together for a particular purpose. And Paul shares that those gifts aren't due to genetics. They're not due to the fact that um, uh, uh, folks were invested in early in life and and now they have this ability because of, of what people have done over the years. But rather specifically, Paul shares that the Spirit of God imparts these gifts one by one to his people. 
So these gifts are not things we muster up on our own. We're certainly responsible for our talents and responsible for practicing and learning and developing these skills. But their origin point is not something we work out on our own, but rather something that comes from God. And so he brings us together with a variety of of giftedness, but they come from one spirit, from him. So the first thing he shares with us here is these gifts are not of our own design and they're not for our own purposes. So if we have these gifts, and he shares that each of us have one of these gifts, then these are things that are given to us by God and investments for us to use within the body of the church. That is the point for our giftedness is not to be self-indulgent with them, not to simply use them in our vocation for our own betterment or our own enrichment, but rather these are things that we are to cultivate for the purpose of sharing with the church. Sharing with God's church. The purpose of each gift is clear and is to contribute to the life of the church. What this also means is that he puts us in a relationship with one another where he brings us together, folks with different gifts, in part so we can depend on one another. No one of us possesses all the gifts that First Baptist Church Belton is going to need to reach the thousands of people that are going to be moving here over the next several decades. No one of us has that. No one pastor has the gifts necessary But collectively, as a church, God brings together a variety of individuals and with a variety of giftedness for the purpose of building up not only this particular local church, but the kingdom of God in this area. So it becomes important then that as we have these gifts, we use these gifts. And that also means we're going to have different gifts ourselves and we're going to look at things in different ways. I think the the only two places where we're around people that aren't just like us are the church and the Department of Motor Vehicles. Those seem to be the only two places uh, where we're not around people that have the same giftedness and focus for ourselves. So there is a purpose for the gift that you have, and that purpose is to contribute to the kingdom of God in your local church. So there are diverse gifts but there's one spirit bringing them all together. The second thing we see is that the church is like a body that has many parts to it. The church is like a body that has many parts to it. We see this picking up in verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ's body. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free. We have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but rather many. And if the foot should say, you know what? I'm not a hand. I'm not part of the body. Is it therefore not of the part of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleases. 
So just as our bodies are uh, put together in a particular way with different parts forming various functions, but still united in one skin, still one body, in the same way we come together from different perspectives, looking at things in slightly different ways, possessing different giftedness, but we are all one body. And he says what unites us is baptism. That is being brought into the body as a, as a church. Several years ago, back in 1991, in fact, uh, was the year I was having a heart to heart conversation with my dad. Uh, whenever I face a big decision, I would go to him. In fact, I still go to him and talk, kind of talk it through with him. And, uh, and I had, uh, I think the biggest decision of my life at that point. I was 21 years old when we were having this conversation. I would be graduating from college in another couple of months. And I felt that, um, that God was leading me to propose to my girlfriend of four years. <clears throat> and so, and she said, yes, by the way. And she's sitting over here, uh, in fact. Uh, so... And so I was talking to dad about this and it, it felt like a really big deal, uh, to me. And, and, uh, so as I was talking to dad about this experience and, and, uh, kind of my thinking, I noticed that as I was talking to him, he seemed just a little distracted. And this bothered me. Have you ever been talking to someone and they, their eyes are locked on yours, but you can tell they're not listening to a word that you're saying? <clears throat> not that, I'm feeling that way right now, of course. Uh, but in the context of this conversation with dad, he seemed not fully engaged. And so finally this frustration bubbled over and I said, dad, um, this seems like a really big deal. I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that I propose to Karen and you would have a new member of the family. If I were to do that, and, and he nodded, he said, John, I'm sorry. He said, you know, your mom and I had a big conversation yesterday, and um, we've decided that we're going to adopt a newborn baby. And so I, I've, I've kind of been thinking about that, so I apologize for, for that as well. So in, in the course of a few months, our family of four grew by a spouse and by another sibling, all within the same period of time. And so our family, our time together, we had two folks that were not um, related in a genetic sense come to join our family at that in that same period of time. And so as I read about Paul's description of the church at Corinth, it does strike me as familiar. That is folks that are different coming together and joining together as a family, being baptized together. One thing that I was really impressed with a few years ago when we joined the church was the care and the deliberate nature of the new members orientation class. So that before someone joins this fellowship, this fellowship of believers, they know exactly what is expected of them and exactly um, what they should expect from the church. And I think it's important that we express that, communicate that, and then as people join, they become part of our family. And so in the same way, God appoints us, God calls us together. 
And that's not something we should take on lightly. We pray for our pastor search committee. We continue to do that. At some point, they will begin discussions with potential candidates. And those candidates in that committee need to start working through this process. Do I feel called by the Lord to this church? Well, folks, that's not just the case for pastors. That's the case for members, too. We, as members, feel called to this body of Christ. In fact, we shouldn't be here unless we feel called to this body of Christ. And likewise, we shouldn't leave unless we feel called to another body of Christ, another local church. So this sense of calling is something quite profound and something strong that we need to be mindful of. And and so what that means is we carry obligations as we join together in this body of Christ. Because again, Christ brought us here to, to do what our giftedness permits us to do. So that means we need to participate with our time, with our tithes and offerings, uh, with our, our counsel, with our uh, committee work, all of these things that we engage in as a church, we have to do. I have loved uh, teaching, have taught for many decades, and, and college students are, are some of my favorite people on the planet. They're so much fun, they bring so much energy, and they look at things in a very different way from how the rest of us look at things. And so I always learn a lot when I work with them and talk to them. There's one thing, though, that always happens. Uh, a class will be going along, and a student will miss a day. They'll be gone. And they'll come back the next class period, And they come up to me and they say these words to me, Dr. Vassar, and then what do you think they say? I hear there are some teachers among us. You're right. Here's what they say. Did I miss anything? Did I miss anything? And I always feel like saying, you know, Johnny, you weren't here, so we just, we just sat around. You know, you didn't miss anything. We, we didn't do anything. I'm not, I'm never sure what answer they are expecting. But then I go and, and I, I push on them a little bit. And I say, you seem to assume that when you're not here, you're the only one that's affected by that. But in fact, if you're not in this class, then the rest of the class doesn't get to hear your responses to questions. The rest of the class doesn't get to hear your perspective. There are conversations that didn't take place on Tuesday because you weren't here. And so the point is not about you being here or not, but about how the class suffers in your absence. And of course, by this time they're saying, so can I make up the quiz or not? I mean, that's kind of their, their main concern. But the same is true in the church. Certainly you learn things in Sunday school and the worship service. There are things that you don't get when you're not here. But the other thing that is missed is those in your classes don't get to hear your input, the hallway conversations as folks check in on how you're doing and how you check in on how they're doing. Those sorts of things don't happen when you're not here. And so God has called us together. And like a, like a mosaic or like a puzzle where there's a piece missing, you can still make it out. You can still have an understanding of what it looks like, but it's incomplete. It's not where it should be. And in the same way, Christ has called us to be here together. And when we're not here, when we're not faithful to what God has called us to be as a body, then we are incomplete and and not doing all that we can as Christ has called us. 
God has placed all of us here. God has called each of us here. And so there's a commitment that we bring to participate in the life and work of the church. Now we notice in verses 25 through 27 that sometimes these differences of perspectives lead to some friction within the body. We see this in verses 25 through 27. There should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. For if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. There is unity in the diversity of people that make up the church, but that doesn't always mean there's unanimity, right? It doesn't mean we all look at things exactly the same way. It doesn't mean that we all reach exactly the same conclusion. In fact, when you look back at Scripture, you see that the people of God are always in a, um, as they, even within the unity that God has called them to, there are at times points of friction. I mean, going back to the Old Testament, Adam and Eve had some disagreement about who was responsible. You may be familiar uh, with the story of David and Saul and some of the friction involved there. Samuel and Saul as well. James and John worked up their own perspective against the other disciples. And then the Apostle Paul. Paul and Barnabas split. Paul and Peter had an argument. Paul and John Mark disagreed. Paul and Philemon, well, that's enough. Paul Paul and, and several others, uh, there were challenges as they worked together. And so it's like any family, there are points at which, I like to call them pinch points. They they don't, it's not like a punch, but it's like a pinch. Sometimes as fellow believers, we get pinched in church, meaning somebody says something or does something that uh, is a little uncomfortable. I wish they hadn't have done that. That hurts a little bit. This, well, now one year ago, I don't know if if you have been for the last week, but I've been reflecting on kind of the lockdown was hitting us about this time a year ago. Uh, And in in social media, a lot of images are popping up of the first uh, word of school closures, of uh, professional sports leagues shutting down. Uh, our, our family, uh, our, our kids who were off at school came home and spent several months under lockdown in our house. And, and I loved, we did things we had never done before as a family and, and, and both of these things can be true. And we got on one another's nerves at times. And so there were those days where we had to intentionally sort of go to our separate corners of the house because we loved one another and we couldn't stand one another, both at the same time. So there are times in the lives of every family where there are pinches, things that get our attention, things that aren't comfortable, and things that we deal with. So as a family, when those things happen, when we uh, pinched one another, when someone got their feelings hurt, No one, even though we were stuck for months together, no one stormed out of the house and drove away and said, I'm never talking to you people again. 
Instead, we met, discussed, worked through. At times there were tears. At times there were apologies. And we, I mean, last I checked, which albeit was an hour or so ago, we're all still kind of on good speaking terms and loving one another as a family. And so this happens in the life of the church as well. As a church, there are those occasions where we have conversations, either one-on-one or in larger group settings, where you say, oh, that, that pinched a little bit. And uh, the need to engage and talk further to continue to build unity as a body. I think perhaps the time I was most aware of this was in my early years of marriage, where, and all of these stories have been vetted by the woman to whom I am related by marriage, uh, so I feel compelled to say that. Uh, the, the first uh, occasion, it was just a, a few months or so into our marriage. We had gotten married in Shreveport, had moved to Fort Worth. I was attending seminary, and I would go off to work or to school, and I would, I would come home after that, and ooh, oh man, it had been a long day. And so I would sit down in comfort, and wherever I happened to sit down uh, to read the newspaper, there were these things called newspapers back then. I would be reading the newspaper uh, or watching TV. And I would, at that point, wherever I happened to be, take my shoes and socks off. And I would leave them there. Yeah, a, a murmur goes through the, the crowd on that point. So we're, And then after a day or two, the, uh, the uh, socks would multiply with that. And um, yes. I, I mean, this is a confession as much as anything else. And so, so in my mind, like, I wasn't thinking about that at all. I was just kind of doing that, you know, left and right. And so going through Karen's mind at that time was the following. He knows that I hate that. I mean, who wants filthy laundry in the kitchen? I mean, who, who wants that? So clearly he knows this and he's doing this intentionally to make me mad. So we arrived at a pinch point uh, that provoked uh, discussion and uh, confession and repentance. And clearly that conversation has remained with me to this day. Um, So as we worked through that, it was helpful. Another instance that happened uh, was uh, about a year or so later. So we had moved there, moved from Shreveport, which is kind of big, to Fort Worth, which is really big. And so I felt a sense of concern about safety and that we couldn't do things in Fort Worth the way we had done things in Shreveport. And one of those things that we would do in Shreveport on cold, wintry days, we would turn the car on and let it run outside and warm up. But living, even though it was in seminary housing, I still wasn't sure about that. Um, and so um, I, I didn't think it was safe for us to leave the car running because someone could come in and take it and drive away. Now, why somebody would want to take an 84 Suburban at that particular time, I'm, I'm, I don't know why, but that was my concern. That was my fear. And Karen would, would sort of listen to me pleasantly, and then she would do whatever she wanted to do. So on this particular day, I had driven a, a car off our other vehicle, uh, to work and shocker, I forgot something. So I came back and as I came back, I noticed the suburban was idling in the parking lot. And so the thought came to my mind, the thought that should never come to any spouse's mind ever. The thought was as follows. I am going to teach her a lesson. 
yeah, yeah. Uh, so I parked uh, the vehicle I was in, was Volkswagen Beetle, around the corner. Then I went and got in the Suburban, which was obviously easy to do because it was unlocked and it was running. And so I drove that down the street and around the corner. And then I went and hid behind a bush. And no, I had thought this through. And so when she came out and saw the car, she would run out to the parking lot about 30 feet away. At that point, I would jump out from behind the bush and say, that is why we never leave the car idling. And you're looking at me like, how stupid are you, John? And you're exactly right. So I'm hiding behind the, the bush and Karen opens the door and looks at the now empty parking space and she blinked a couple of times and then she shut the door. And I hadn't planned for that. And so I, I paused for just a moment and then I thought, she is about to call the police. And I'm going to have a lot of explaining to do, not just to her, but to the authorities. And so I, I ran to the back door of our apartment as fast as I could. And the, the back door opened up into a kitchenette that was about the size of this lectern right here. Very tiny space. And back then, there, uh, the telephones were actually on the wall. And so she was on the phone as I came bursting in. And she told me later she thought that perhaps whoever had taken the car was now coming after her or something else there. And so, uh, a significant pinch, I think we would say, and one that, uh, I think it was, I think it was right before the snowstorm she forgave me for. As I recall, that was something that, uh, took, took a few years for us to work through. So, <clears throat> even in our closest relationships, there are those times where we do get pinched. One thing that can be helpful for a church, and so I wanted to spend just a moment on this today, uh, Dr. Al Moeller, who's president of the uh, Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, he developed this a while back, and I added to it a little bit, and this is a way of, of triaging church conflict. So you're familiar with the idea of triage, which is the idea that uh, developed during World War I. Patients would come in off the battlefield, and they would have to decide... Like 20% of the patients are going to be fine if they wait for several hours before we take care of them. 20%, we could throw all of our resources into them and it wouldn't make a difference. And then about 80% we need to work with. So triage is a way of figuring out which issues, which patients or which doctrinal ideas are most important. And so here's what he developed for, he developed three tiers of uh, of theological triage. And I think we have those on the, um, on the uh, screen, which may or may not appear in a moment. There we are. So triaging conflict, tier one. So these are the most significant issues that a church would face. The first tier are those things that distinguish us from other religious faiths. So those views that we have as Christians that we don't share with Hindus, that we don't share with Muslims, that we don't share with other faith traditions. So a couple of examples of those sorts of things would be things like um, the fact that Jesus Christ comes to save uh, our sins. That's something that we believe that's fundamental, that's foundational, that is different from all these other religious traditions. So that's a really important doctrine. 
That's a really important idea. And if that issue ever comes up in a church, that's something that we need to have a big discussion uh, about and something that it is, uh, that, that is the, the highest uh, level. That's what we need to engage in. That's what we need to fight about the most are those very fundamental issues of being a Christian. The second uh, tier that, um, that he defined are those things that distinguish us as Baptists from other Christians. So these are doctrinal ideas that we believe as Baptists that separate us from other Christians. So things like we as Baptists believe that you need to be old enough to know what you're doing before you're baptized into the body of Christ. So that separates us from some of our other brothers and sisters who believe in infant baptism uh, or believe that baptism actually causes you to be a part of, uh, of, of Christ, that you can't come to him without that. That's a difference uh, of opinion. Uh, a, another example of a doctrine like that is the idea that we as Baptists believe that we can speak directly to God and share with him, confess our sins, uh, and, and give him praise without that having to go through a priest or anything along those lines. So as Baptists, we believe in priesthood of all believers. So we understand that when we get to the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven, we're going to be sitting next to Presbyterian brothers and Methodist sisters, and we're going to be together. Uh, and we believe that these Baptist perspectives are so important, they're worth pulling away from other Christian traditions. You with me so far? All right, tier three doctrines, tier three ideas. These are things that are important and significant and separate us from other Baptists, but we can still go to church together. So things like uh, particular views about the book of Revelation and end times. There's lots of different views about what that looks like, and you can be Baptist and have lots of those different views. The, the only view you can't have is you can't pronounce it Revelations, plural, because that's not the name of the book. It's Revelation. There was one Revelation. Revelation and Awana are both singular. I feel, again, this is like a sermon within a sermon. Uh, Revelation and Awana are always singular. Uh, another, another thing that uh, Baptists have difference uh, of opinion on is the issue of Calvinism and Reformed thought and predestinationism. There's a wide variety of views all within the Baptist tradition. So things, so those sorts of things we can have disagreements about and still go to church together and still worship together, still have Sunday school together. We just have difference of opinions on those. And so Dr. Mueller stopped with that, but I, I want to add a fourth tier. And a fourth, the fourth tier is cultural things about the church that aren't doctrinal at all, but still come up in churches. Things like, <clears throat> Worship has to be at 11 a.m. on Sunday. Has to be. There's no other time. You have to wear certain clothes to be able to worship. Uh, you have to have a Wednesday night supper for church to work, for, for the church to even be possible. Uh, a ministry guide, a, a friend of mine, there a lot of things his church went through when they decided not to pass out ministry guides anymore, anymore but made them digital. And these are things that are not even doctrinal issues. They're not even related to that at all. But instead, they're just a part of the culture of Christianity that we're most accustomed to. So the idea behind this is, is you want to focus 
you're fighting in your anger on the higher tiers and then less so on the lower tiers. Does that make sense? So what we want to be sure to hold on to no matter what are those top tiers and those lower tiers, we can agree to disagree. But guess what? What happens in the church? We tend to expend our energy mostly on those lower tiers. And that, in my experience, uh, has, has led to some of the challenges that churches often face. So as we uh, move forward as a diverse church and a unified church, one of the things we need to do is to expend our attention and our energy appropriately on those tiers. Go all in on those top tiers and then have a robust discussion, have conversation, share our thoughts on the others and understand that at the end of the day, God has called us to be a church in the culture that we live in today, not the culture I was raised in or the culture that makes me most comfortable, but rather the culture that uh, we need to engage in uh, to reach, again, all these thousands of people that Christ is bringing to Bell County. Last point, and the briefest point, I'll encouragingly say, is understanding that all of these things, the diverse gifts in one spirit, the one body in many parts, all of these things are bound together in love. And we see this in verse 31, but earnestly desire the best gifts And yet I will show you a more excellent way. So after all the diversity that he shares, Paul is setting up chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Do you know that chapter? It's some of the most beautiful poetry Paul ever wrote, the chapter on love. That the diversity and the unity working together produces a profound love for others. What does that love for others look like? It looks like understanding that our purpose in being here is to reach the kingdom, reach folks for the kingdom in the most effective way possible. And that is more important than what John prefers or what John wants. Two short examples that show that. One, and they both involve grass. I'm not sure why. Uh, one, uh, Herman Killebrew. Are you familiar with him? He was a, an incredible baseball player uh, for the Twins back in the 60s. Uh, when he retired, only Babe Ruth had more home runs in the American League uh, than he uh, had in his career. And he had several kids, and he played baseball with them in their backyard all the time, like during the season, out of the season. And guess what happened to his backyard? It looked terrible. And so one day his wife said to him, Harmon, you're killing the grass. Can't y'all go somewhere else? I know it would be less convenient, but it would preserve the grass. And he said to her, we're not growing grass. We're growing boys. That's what we're growing. Second, that uh, was just an impressive story when I first heard it. It uh, concerns a Baptist church in Oklahoma City, Skelly Drive Baptist Church. Art Rogers was the pastor. He has unfortunately passed away. Uh, but he was uh, there. It's a, it's a beautiful church in Oklahoma City. And next to it, I was looking at it on Google Maps this week. Next to it, there's a big 
uh, beautiful field that the church uses for all sorts of activities. It's about the size of a couple of football fields, and it's just pristine. In fact, the Google Maps view, they're actually mowing it while the car took the picture of it. And so... Uh, it had rained for several days, and Brother Art was there working on a sermon on a Saturday. I'm sure that shocks you that pastors work on sermons on Saturday sometimes, but he was doing that. And he heard the sound of a couple of small engines running, and he thought, huh, wonder what that is. So he walked through the church, looked out the window, and saw that these two young men had pulled a truck up with a trailer, pulled down some four-wheelers, and we're absolutely shredding this field, just completely tearing it up. They were doing wheelies. They were, they were doing all these tricks. And in the process, this wet ground was being torn up. And so he went out to see them. And they saw him coming, and they tried to get the four-wheelers back on the trailer, but they couldn't get it up before he got there. And so they prepared for... Uh, a conversation, but not the one that happened. Brother Art said to them, you guys are really good on these four-wheelers. They weren't prepared for that. And so he then said, you know, we've got a picnic on the grounds in about four weeks. Do you think there's any way that you two could come here and do some of those tricks and wheelie? I think our people would love to see how good y'all are on these, on these four-wheelers. And if you come, we'll, we'll feed you. It's going to be like a carnival. We'll feed you. And the two guys said, sure. And so they come back four weeks later. They put on a show. They meet the people. The people love on them. They respond. They start attending. They're baptized into the body of Christ. And on the day they were baptized, Art Rogers, he was about to baptize the first one, and he said, Skelly Road Baptist Church, where we love people more than we love grass, he said. And I love that. That's the kind of church that God has called us to be at First Baptist Belton. That's the the kind of church that I believe we are at First Baptist Belton. And this diversity and the unity has a purpose to it, and that purpose is to reach this world for Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this amazing plan of how you have brought a group of different believers together for one purpose, that purpose to reach those around us. I pray for your wisdom and I pray for your Spirit's presence in our lives today. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. I want to give you an opportunity to come forward and respond to any message that God has laid upon your heart. Brother Matt is here in front of us. And as we've talked today about joining a church and being a part of a church, this is how we do it in the Baptist tradition, for you to come forward and share that with him. If you'd like to come forward and pray with him about something going on in your life, he would love to do that. And if you want to know more about what it means to become a part of the body of Christ and a part of the family of God, now is the time for you to respond to that. Would you join and stand together? What is First Baptist Belton all about? How do I become a part of this community? Come learn more about our new members class offered the first Sunday of each month. This is a great way to connect with others and learn more about our church.